Hello, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. I'm your host, Jesse Single. For today's episode, I spoke with Nicholas Christakis. He's a physician and a sociologist who directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, as well as the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. Nicholas is also the author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, which came out in March and which was the primary subject of our conversation. It's such a fascinating book. Uh, Nicholas's basic argument is that humanity has this biological and evolutionary blueprint that gives rise to who we are as a species, the sorts of social structures we tend to build just about everywhere, and so forth. From that basic idea, he takes the book in a thousand fascinating directions, only a small handful of which we even had time to talk about. The book's part anthropology, part sociology, part network science, part evolutionary psychology. It's just one of those books that teaches you a huge amount about our fascinating, troubled, vexing species in 400 pages. And it does so from a place of genuine optimism and hope about human nature, which, even though I'm sometimes skeptical of of those uh, feelings, I think that's pretty important to have at the moment. Some of you might recognize Nicholas's name from a big social justice blow-up that occurred at Yale a few years ago. That isn't what his book's about at all, though we do touch on it briefly toward the end of the podcast. My sense was Nicholas does not want to be known for that, uh, because he's done so much other interesting and valuable research, and has continued to do so. So if you do want to learn more about that blow-up, there were approximately 8 trillion words written and uttered about it, especially back in 2016, but you can Google to find out more. Uh, that's it for the introduction. Remember, you can always email me with feedback at singleminded at gmail.com. If you want to support my podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review it, tell your friends. Uh, you can subscribe to my newsletter, jessiesingle.substack.com. One other option would be you could start a cult centered around my podcast that has weird pagan rituals and stuff, and then you could funnel a portion of the entrance fees to me. Email me if you want uh, payment info for how to how to get that money to me. That's just a thought, just brainstorming, no bad ideas. But yeah, as always, thank you for listening, and you'll hear more from me soon. So in, in your book, you have this really fascinating section on shipwrecks as natural sort of psychological experiments what what drew you to that because i just thought that was such an interesting section well i mean in the in the mind of a mad scientist if you were interested in the topic that i'm interested in which is what is the kind of natural society that human beings are predestined to make that is to say uh you know what what kind of society would we make if we were left to our druthers uh, if you were a mad scientist, what you would love to do is take a group of babies uh, who had never been taught anything and abandon them on an island with plentiful food and, say, and other resources and have them magically grow up and then see, you know, what kind of society did they make? So so their bodies would be human bodies. The, their, their, our evolution, their genes would shape the structure and function of their bodies. And the question is, would their genes also shape the structure and function of their societies? Now, of course, it's obviously unethical uh, and, 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 and cruel and, and just not feasible to do an experiment like that. But, but actually, that hasn't stopped people from thinking about such an experiment. So, uh, and this has been called the forbidden experiment. In fact, Herodotus writes about an Egyptian pharaoh that uh, wondered what kind of language would people speak if they were never taught to speak a language, which is actually really kind of a sophisticated scientific question. And um, this pharaoh contrived to take two infants 
and uh, give them to a mute shepherd uh, to be raised uh, up in the mountains and uh, to see what language uh, they spoke. And um, they, uh, the result of that experiment allegedly was that the Pharaoh concluded that they spoke some other more ancient language than, um, than Egyptian. Uh, and uh, this same, same idea has also uh, you know, occupied the thoughts of some uh, European monarchs over time. Um, I don't know if it's been done or attempted more than, than, than a few times. But anyway, so, so this has been called the forbidden experiment. And so I was trying to think about what would be natural proxies for that type of an experiment. And a number of ideas came to mind. And one of them was, was shipwrecks, and um, where a group of people were suddenly thrown together on a, some kind of isolated place, and they had to make a society uh, in order to survive, if nothing else. And I found a database that listed all known shipwrecks um, on the planet. It was intended primarily, I think, for scuba divers. And there were 9,000 shipwrecks between the during the era of European exploration of the planet between 1500 and 1900. And of those 9,000 shipwrecks, 20 uh, were cases in which 19 people, which was a threshold I picked, had been uh, uh, isolated for at least two months, which is another threshold I picked. And um, so I got all those records, uh, and, and one person, of course, had to survive in order to write about it. So I got all the written records that were available for these, these, nine, these 20 wrecks and looked at all modern uh, archaeological excavations of the wreck sites and tried to reconstruct what kind of society do these wrecked crews make. And, and what were sort of the key uh, commonalities you found? What's, what's sort of the elevator pitch for what happens if, if a society mini society gets formed after a shipwreck. Right. So the, 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 there are a number of conclusions from that part of, uh, of, the, of the work that I did. One conclusion is that if, if people are able to make a society at all, and they're not always able to make a society, um, you know, sometimes they atomize, they split up and separate, or, or they fall upon each other and kill each other, uh, or, or not, not necessarily kill each other. We, we have some examples of that, not too many, but... Um, but if they're able to make a society, they typically make a society that's characterized by these fundamental qualities that are a part of our nature. And, and, there, and when I speak of human nature, I, I have a particular interest. So there are many aspects of human nature that have to do with uh, things that can be expressed just within you. For example, your spirituality, for instance, how spiritual you are, or your, your uh, wanderlust, or your risk tolerance, for example. These, these things are qualities that an individual can have that are part of our human nature, but that we can, you know, if you're all by yourself, you can have those experiences. But I'm interested in that part of our human nature that we express between individuals, things that require the presence of another person, for example, love to, you You know, you must love someone else. I mean, I suppose you could love yourself, but I'm talking about loving someone else or, or friendship, you know, you have to befriend someone else. So, um, so th there are these core parts of our nature that form a, a, a collection of attributes uh, that I call the social suite. And uh, this suite of traits includes love, friendship, cooperation, uh, social networks, a teaching, the fact that we teach each other things. Um, so these qualities were expressed in, in, in all the shipwrecks, uh, or almost all of them. And, they, and when the groups were able to express these qualities, which are very natural to us, those shipwrecks, so that's the first lesson, was that they were able to express these qualities and they did express them. And the second lesson was that when they did, they tended to be more successful. Uh, you, you could look across the sample of shipwrecks and look at which ones 
uh, we're able to uh, have the most survivors, for example, or the least uh, least violence with uh, among among the the wrecked uh, individuals. And those 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 societies that were able to organize themselves along these lines uh, tended to fare better. I should say that shipwrecks is not the only example. So we I look at um, I look at uh, communes that were set up in the 1960s and 70s. In fact, human beings since Roman times have set out into the wilderness to say, you know, society's screwed up. Let's get out of here and start our own society. And they go and they try to set, you know, make the world anew or kibbutzes in Israel during the starting, well, during actually first decades, but especially since the 1960s, I look at um, scientific settlements, you know, outposts by scientists in Antarctica, for example, um, I look at online communities, massively multiplayer online games, for example, or experiments that we've done in my laboratory. So I look at I look at um, I look at lots of different ways in which groups of people uh, have intentionally or unintentionally or experimentally come together and try to try to draw conclusions about what is the kind of society they make. What's an an innate society? So. The key, I take it, the key takeaway you want readers to have from the idea of a social suite is not that it's not this sort of fatalistic thing where every society everywhere has all these qualities. It's just these are the qualities that sort of pop up in some form or another everywhere, and they all have sort of clearly explained evolutionary origins. Do I have that right? The latter part is right. I would say the former part, I actually uh, argue that these qualities are universal. Now, there are a few exceptions. So, for example, we might say that play in childhood is universal. You know, children in every society play, but there's one society that famously, the Bening people, who suppress the natural play impulse in children. And it is possible to suppress, you know, if you apply a powerful enough force, a cultural force, for example, you can suppress it. Just like, you know, you might, your, your pancreas has a kind of natural way that it is uh, pre-wired to work, but if I starve you, in, in your childhood, your pancreas won't work this way. Uh, so, or your growth will be stunted, for example. So there's a natural body that we humans are going to make, but you know, we, can, uh, we can starve you. And then that leads to an unnatural body. So my argument is, is that you can have unnatural societies when you have sort of uh, very powerful external forces. So for example, uh, just to make an analogy to the play example or to the the, the diabetes example. So you could have a society in which it's a very totalitarian state and it attempts to stop people from having intimate personal friendships, you know, like in East Germany, for example, where the state was able to cultivate a level of suspicion among individuals that people literally couldn't trust their own friends and withdrew because the state wanted the primary alliance to allegiance to be with the state. But that's not sustainable. Those types of societies do not endure. Uh, it's because they are because they are trying uh, so hard to suppress uh, a very natural uh, instinct. Well, and so, that's, and, and so that's, these are universal. So these traits are universal. Absent very powerful forces, they are universally expressed. East Germany example reminded me a little of what happened on the kibbutzes, where they sort of tried to, to a certain extent, suppress the bond between parent and child because they were more collectivist than that, right? And it just didn't work. Yeah, the same kind of idea. So, so one of the challenges that these utopian movements often face is that they want the allegiance of the of the members of the community to be to the whole group, and so therefore 
allegiances, special allegiances to one's family, for example, or to one's friends, could uh, weaken potentially the bond to the group. So many, not all, many of these movements are organized in a way that tries to to suppress, um, for example, as you're in the kibbutz example, uh, parenting. They're also driven by other philosophical and political agendas. For instance, uh, when you're committed to gender equality, as many of the founders of kibbutzes were, you have this problem of caring for young children, and uh, which tends to be very heavily gendered in every society. And so to try to equalize the, the kind of um, standing of men and women and the occupational opportunities for men and women, the idea was let's get the kids out of the home and institutionalize that care. But that does not last. I mean, communal child rearing arrangements, which have been attempted since the ancient Greeks actually, have really never endured, as far as I can tell, in any society, including in the kibbutzes, which tried very hard to do it. But eventually the, uh, the collective child rearing was abandoned because I think there's a line in the book, I'm forgetting it right now, where basically the, the women in these kibbutzes said that they really like little things you know? <laughs> and they want their own children and they just don't want them, you know, in these communal nurseries. Right. I like the idea of like a, a radical social experiment like that. And people come to the, the very surprising conclusion that mothers like to spend time with their babies. Yes. And so do fathers. I mean, people do, but, but the, the mothers, especially in that situation. And I think in most situations, I, I'm sort of, I'm jumping to the end of the book a little bit here and we'll go back, but obviously your book is a little bit in conversation with this broader debate over nature versus nurture and, and sort of Steven Pinker's arguments against blatant slatism. Obviously your whole book is arguing in favor of like something called human nature that's predictable and, and uh, researchable in certain ways. I think the one sort of explicit example you make of the culture war stuff is you talk about a, an eminent professor who is, denied the fact that there's anything to the idea that men are much more violent and criminal than women and that could have any biological origin. Do you think that sort of like real hardline blank slavism is, is still a pretty big problem in some corners of academia or has that been overstated or overblown by culture warring? No, I think, uh, I think there is a, I think there's a large contingent of academics that uh, still I think actually there's a small group that are truly blank slatists, but there's a larger group that 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 believes that yes, maybe our biology plays a role, but it's tiny and negligible, and um, you know, and that's just scientifically false. Um, and you know, I I don't I didn't want to engage that topic in the book because I for a number of reasons. One is that the book is an optimistic book, uh, and and it focuses on the good parts of our nature. And I didn't want to get bogged down in in, in that particular political topic. The um, the book is uh, is in conversation with a number of other. You know, I mean, you alluded to Stephen's work, which I greatly admire, uh, but also you know Jared Diamond's work, uh, you know Guns, Germs, and Steel, uh, or Stephen's more recent books, you know, The Better Angels of Our Nature. But but one of the but the, the way my book is different than those books is, uh, well, especially Stephen's work is Stephen is very focused on correctly in my view, on the historical forces that are shaping our the structure of our societies. So he points out that, and, and others have too, that in the last two to 400 years, with the technological advances of, and the philosophical advances of the enlightenment, a kind of commitment to the equality of human beings, uh, to democratic ideals, to liberal principles, the invention of the steam engine and the telephone and, 
and pharmaceuticals and all these other magnificent technological advances that we have had that human beings worldwide are living longer, healthier, uh, there's less starvation, less violence, uh, more equality, uh, sort of more, more ability of people to determine their fates. It's, 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 it's miraculous uh, what we have achieved as a species in the last couple of hundred years. Now, of course, there, there are many horrors, uh, you know, atomic weapons and the pogroms and the, the Holocaust and colonialism and many, many, you know, vile uh, slavery uh, things that have that also happened in the last two to 400 years. But those are all, you know, everything is in fact getting better. But my point is not even that. My point is not these historical forces. My point is that for tens of thousands of years, th there have been very powerful forces, more ancient, more powerful, deeper forces that have been shaping the trajectory of human beings. And, and not only are those forces shaped the way we are, but they've actually shaped us to be good. That, that, that these forces that equipped us with the capacities for love and friendship and cooperation and teaching, these forces must necessarily have been more powerful than, than the fact that we are also prone to violence and tribalism and hatred and mendacity. Because, because if, if it was the case that every time I came near you, you killed me or told me useless false information, or otherwise were mean to me, as an animal, I'd be better off living a solitary life. So we would be solitary. So, so, so the benefits of a connected life must have outweighed the costs, and they did outweigh the costs, and that's, that's what I'm able to show, I believe. But you also argue that, that there could be something unnatural about our present arrangement, where like, if you're a, if you're a city dweller, there could be days where you interact with three people in sort of market settings who you mumble a few words to, this can be pretty alienating, and this this sort of goes against our, for lack of a overstated term, but our evolutionary nature, right? Yes, no, I do believe we have an evolutionary nature. I don't think there's anything wrong with that term. Um, I think, um, I mean, now you know this is it's this is a uh, this would take a long digression or a long answer to this question. We are one of the amazing things about us as a species is that we are equipped with the capacity to make culture, uh, to, to, to accumulate knowledge and distribute knowledge across time and space. And that is to say that, that as humans discover and invent things, we transmit them to the next generation or we transmit them laterally to our friends or other strangers even. And the, for example, if, if you learned calculus in high school, if I took you back 500 years, you would be the most educated mathematician on the planet. And yet now, because of all the work that was done primarily by Isaac Newton uh, and Leibniz, uh, you know, you can you can learn this thing in high school, and, and which is a very powerful tool. And the same goes with everything: the roads that have been built, the navigational knowledge, the 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 domestication of animals that were done thousands of years ago. You're born into the world where animals have already been domesticated and crops. Uh, all of this stuff is, is your birthright for just for having when you were born. And so this capacity to accumulate knowledge allows us to reshape our environment. And, and so, so on the one hand, you are right that we can then go about creating what might seemingly be unnatural environments. For example, we can invent cities, which were invented you know, between five and 8,000 years ago, depending on how you define a city. And, and for our, you know, all of our evolution, there was no such thing as a city. And these cities can then 
present us with certain novel experiences, which we might ex experience to be unnatural and might be unnatural. But nevertheless, they can, what I guess what I'm trying to say is that from another perspective, they are quite natural because we have been endowed with the capacity to invent them. So this is a complicated topic. I don't know if I, I don't know if I really answered your question, but I kind of gave the beginning of an answer, perhaps. No, you did. I just, um, I, I do want to hone in on that idea of, I just found it really interesting, your, your uh, claim, which I found credible, that these sort of more superficial interactions we have in day -day oh, right. city life, that those those give us sort of certain yes. evolutionary signals that we interpret negatively and make us feel bad, right? Correct. That's exactly right. So our, so our natural, that's exactly right. Yes. So on the on the narrow point that you just put on the table, I think that's right. And so to, to elaborate on that a little bit, what happens is, is we evolve to 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 need and to crave intimate friendships. The capacity to to make and retain friends was crucial in the ancestral environment to our survival and and how we go about making friends. It's incidentally, the fact that we make friends is very unusual among among animals. We're, we're not the only animal that has sex with each other, of course, but we're one of the very few animals that befriends each other. We form long-term non-reproductive unions to unrelated individuals. This is rare. We do it, certain primates do it, elephants do it, certain cetaceans do it. And, and, um, and so this is, and so we evolved a whole set of, of cognitive abilities and emotional uh, sort of uh, capacities that support this this behavior, this capacity to make friendships. So we read, we read uh, real friends as our, everyone knows they're real friends, the kind of intimate way they're at ease with their real friends, the kind of joy it brings you to be with your friends, the way in which you care about the well-being of your friends, even though it might not benefit you, you're like interested in what happens to you, just like you might care about your children, you want them to do well, you know, and it, uh, it, just because you love them. So many of us have this experience of feeling this way about our friends. But in the modern world, that's full of anonymous interactions and bureaucracies where we interact with other people, not as human beings, but in their performance of a role. You know, they are selling us something in a market economy, or we are going to a government agency and interacting with someone in a bureaucracy. Our evolved psychology reads those interactions as not real and and therefore potentially as dangerous. You know, we feel a kind of anomie, a kind of disconnection. And uh, and this can be quite uh, de depressing and can actually be harmful to our health and, you know, is unnatural in certain ways. Incidentally, the same thing happens with Facebook. So one of the reasons I think people are so depressed with using online social media is that they go to the app expecting to have a real interaction with a real friend. And instead, in a sort of deeply disappointing way, they have a kind of superficial interaction with someone who's at best just an acquaintance. And it's that disjuncture between expectations and reality that I think is contributing to a lot of people being so depressed when they use social media. Yeah, I feel like the... Um... The analogy I often use when trying to puzzle out what social media and online social interactions are doing to us is is cheap cheeseburgers. Because I feel like in America, we live in a society where you can buy a cheeseburger anywhere for very cheap. And there's uh -huh. a kernel of evolutionary need there. We need calories. We're attracted to cheeseburgers. But all these 
forces have conspired and, and coalesced to create a world where it actually isn't adaptive in the long run to be able to buy a 800 calorie cheeseburger anywhere you want for two bucks. That's the, right. So in the same way, maybe it isn't adaptive, uh, both the superficial interactions in city life, if they're not buttressed by realer interactions and all the stuff on Twitter and Facebook that could, it could be harming us in the long run, even if there's a kernel of a desire to connect there that, that is useful. Right. Right. Well, I think, I mean, your analogy to the plentiful availability of, of, uh, of, uh, of milk and honey of, uh, of fat and sugar uh, in the modern world is, um, is a problem. And, you know, we evolved in a, in an environment in which it, salt was not easy to get fat was not easy to get sugar was not easy to get and so we crave those things uh you know calorie dense foods and so we our bodies are not fit for the current environment i mean um so dan lieberman uh, an anthropologist at, at harvard is actually actively working on a book that's about this topic the sort of mismatch between you know our bodies uh, caloric needs and the current environment but steven pinker has also talked a little bit about uh has a kind of funny um, little discourse that he talks about how, you know, people understand the fact that we are naturally afraid of snakes uh, or heights and um, or being alone. These are all rational fears to have given our ancestral environment. They're deadly. Uh, it was good to be naturally phobic about these objects, but we are not yet phobic of, of, uh, of guns or of uh, loose carpets. Uh, and these are the kinds of things that, you know, over tens of thousands of years, our descendants may, you know, fear guns, uh, because those among us who had that fear may actually wind up surviving longer. <laughs> so, so, so I think that's, you know, we, we haven't yet caught up, our evolution hasn't caught up to the kind of modern um, environment. I say this incidentally, I mean, this is a very complicated topic, because it is also the case that things that we make culturally not just guns, but actually the most famous example is domesticated animals, reshape the trajectory of our evolution too. So they, they, these things reshape our minds. That, that is to say, in the ancestral environment, the presence of snakes in the environment reshaped our minds so that we, many of us are phobic of snakes, uh, which is a, a healthy thing, let's say, to have. But in the modern environment, we, the, the things we make, namely guns, which are not a natural, which are, have become a natural feature because we make them, but they're not like snakes. Over time, our bodies might evolve to fear those things. In my corner of this sort of journalistic world and among some of the academics I interview, there's a pretty fierce skepticism toward a lot of evolutionary psychology. And I'm partially sympathetic to it because you see sort of creepy so-called manosphere figures using half-baked evopsych to support misogyny and, and horrible right. things about women. What's your advice to sort of consumers of science about how to sift bad sloppy evopsych from, from reasonable evopsych? And do you agree with like the idea that evolution is really sort of all we have if we want a general framework for human psychology? Yeah, there are many things to say in response to that. First, I would say to my eye, there's no more, there's no sounder footing for the social sciences than biology. I, the, the belief that biology does not play a role in our social lives is 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 um, is, is ignorance, and um, is soundly refuted by you know abundant uh, evidence, empirical evidence. First point. Second point. There is a problem. I mean, second point uh, that I would make is that 
is that there's, and okay, first, the second point I would make is that there's no doubt that natural selection has shaped our psychology. I mean, why would all the other body organs be shaped? You know, our muscles, our eyes, our ears, our, our kidneys, but not our brains. You know, our brains are also clearly part of our bodies and they have also clearly been shaped by natural selection. So there's no doubt that, that our, 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 evolved, our, you know, our psychology has evolved in response to the ancestral environments that, that we have faced. That's my second point. My third point would be that the, the, one of the problems with evolutionary psychology, however, is that it is very easy to get just so stories. It, it, the, the empirical work in evolutionary psychology remains challenging. So the theories can often be magnificent, uh, beautiful work done by, you know, for example, John Tooby and Lita Cosmides uh, and, and many others that really provide extraordinary insights into why we are the way we are. So Joe Henrik, for example, has done a magnificent work. Ken Lalonde. I mean, there are many scientists who are working in these areas that, that uh, are doing first-rate work. But it's often difficult to come up with experiments or to adduce experimental evidence to support the theories. That doesn't mean the theories are wrong. It just means we need to do more work. So that's my third point. And I guess my, oh, so, so my, so, and part of that point is that it's very, it's very easy to come up with just so stories to explain, well, why are we this way? You know, uh, so, let, you know, you might speculate that there's been speculation that, 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 for example, there's a kind of body shape that men naturally prefer in women that that body shape is felt to communicate fertility. Well, all right, let's go do some experiments to test that. Let's go to forager populations around the world and see how common it is. Let's ask blind people who can't see the body to describe the bodies that they think would be appropriate. Uh, there are ingenious kinds of things that you can do that would shed light on your theory, whatever your theory might be, so that it, you can escape this sort of just so-ness uh, of, the, of the story. And on the misogyny claim, I think that's that's overstated. I mean, I think I think there are differences between men and women on average. It, why would they? Why would there be such difference in every other species, but not in our own? Um, of course, all science can be abused for ill intent by bad actors. Um, you know, you can have eugenics, for example, you know, built up on on uh, you know crappy science, but uh, that doesn't mean we throw out the science. That just means we we uh, you know, discard the bad arguments. I think what happens over and over and over, and, and as a science writer who tries to grapple with these issues, honestly, it sort of drives me crazy, is, you know, um, if I say, because of evolution, it's okay for men to cheat on their partners and discard them when they get older in favor of younger ones, I'm not really making a, an empirical argument. I'm making an argument about values. I'm making an argument. Yeah, about I mean, values. I would never write the sentence that way. Uh, nor would you. Uh, but I mean, the, the sentence might be, uh, for various reasons, in in humans, just like in other primates, uh, men uh, males are more likely to have uh, have more partners on average than females. Now there are fascinating exceptions to this too. If you look at bonobos, and you know, I mean, there's you could get deep in the weeds in this topic. But it is possible to make such empirical statements about our species, like other primate species or other mammalian species, in my opinion. Right. But I'm saying the problem is when you jump from those empirical observations to here's what our value should be or here's how we, ah, should, right. here's yes. how we should morally treat one another. The, right. the, the issue is the values and the morality. And that, that stands to a certain extent independent. There's no, there's no scientific finding that will convince me it's OK to, uh, you know, be abusive toward a girlfriend 
frame. That that's that's right. and I think people confuse those things, right? Yes, that's right. Uh, I, uh, so I would agree with that. There, you know, there's this so-called move from an an is to an ought statement, right. and um, and 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 what we should be focusing on is the move from is to ought, not the uh, you know we, we we shouldn't reject the empirical reality of the is uh, because we're afraid of how it might lead to an ought. Uh, we should just be careful about how we move from the is to the ought statement, but. Um, but it's also the case, you know, for example, in, in Blueprint, I, I tried to build an extended argument for why all of these things that we, that there is a kind of uh, evolutionary foundation to morality. Because, you know, I, I do show that we have evolved to be cooperative species and loving and friendly and altruistic. And, and these, these types of, um, these qualities are seen as moral qualities wherever they are found. And for example, we don't care. We're not interested in whether you you're, you love yourself or are just to yourself or are kind to yourself. We're interested in whether you love others or are just to others or are kind to others. There, for many of our moral values, they are deeply connected to our sociality. They're deeply connected to how we interact with each other. And so many of these principles like reciprocity, for example, or, or, or fidelity even, uh, have been shaped by by uh, by natural selection, and so I do think, despite the fact that I just said that we we can't easily get from an is statement to an ought statement, I nevertheless do believe that many ought statements are founded on is statements. Yeah, well, I just want to be clear about uh, this to to listeners who aren't nerds the way we are. The the is ought uh, confusion is sort of this philosophical idea where I say something is this way, like I observed this, therefore it should be that way morally, right? And that, right. that's just a confusion of sort of empirical observations and values. And I think, um, I guess- My favorite, yeah, go ahead. my favorite example about that is that, this is also called the naturalistic fallacy. My favorite example about this is maternal death. So, so the, in, in nature, uh, our species, uh, many mothers died during childbirth, but we would never consider that to be a morally good thing, right? It does happen. It's quote natural, but it is. We should do everything we possibly can to prevent and stop that. Uh, so we don't just throw up our hands and say, "Oh well, that's just the way the world is, and it, it's the best of all possible worlds, and we just have to accept that." No, we don't do that. Right, and I, I, I can't tell you how many times in sort of culture war issues I see people in my people I know who are smart say like X or Y is natural, therefore it's good, which really is this sort of horseshoe theory thing of like you know a conservative saying it's it's quote unquote more natural to be heterosexual than homosexual. Therefore, uh, it's therefore homosexuality is bad or something, right? Yeah, and it's um, it's just very confusing. So I I, I want to um jump into sort of applying some of the lessons of your book to to contemporary problems. But do you mind if we just take a quick break first? No, that's fine. We're back with Nicholas Christakis, the author of Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society, which I should just uh, reiterate for my intro is is really excellent. And I, I just I learned so much about 
humanity's sheer weirdness and potential. And uh, I just, I, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. I wanted to move a little bit from from some of the specifics of the book to like their practical application. And and one area I was thinking a lot about as I wrote it is sort of you know what to do about about diversity, how to get people from different groups to get along. What's going on in Europe where there's this big migration wave that has fueled a lot of backlash and I think it's probably harming a lot of people. I'm curious about this idea of sort of getting people to see themselves as member of a larger, bigger group or unit, you know, national, continental or whatever else. It sounds like that is one of the more straightforward ways to dissipate at least some group tensions, right? Yeah. So one of the things we haven't talked about yet is one of the one of the elements of the social suite, believe it or not, is the capacity for individual identity. So let me say a few words about that, and then I'll come back to your question. So one of the things that's very interesting about our species and that many people take for granted is that we have the ability to signal our uniqueness. Now, we do this in our with our faces, uh, and every human face is different from every other human face. And, and this is a way that we could signal, this is me. And that re- those regions of our genome that are responsible for the structure of our faces that we're born with are extremely variable and can be combined in many different ways so that our faces have this enormous variety. So, you know, all pancreases ideally should work the same. All kidneys should work the same, but all faces should not be the same. All faces should be different, we think, so that we can tell each other apart. Furthermore, we don't just have the capacity to signal our identity, we also have evolved the capacity to detect the unique identity of others. So there's large parts of our brain are devoted to being able to recognize people's faces and tell them apart. You can look out at a sea of a thousand faces and tell one person is is different from another. So both of these capacities to signal our identity and to detect the identity of others are evolutionary luxuries. Other animals don't do this like we do it. Okay, so with that background, let me go back to your question. So there is, as everyone knows, a sort of ascendant kind of uh, populism and tribalism around the world again at the moment, this historical moment. And many people, myself included and yourself included, are, are, uh, you know, are concerned about this. And in fact, this tribalism, this so-called in-group bias, the, the fact that we prefer the company of people we resemble is also a part of our nature. And it's, you know, to me, one of the most depressing parts of our nature that we, that we are built this way. And there are interesting evolutionary reasons for why, which we can come back to if you're interested, why we're endowed with a capacity for tribalism. But anyway, for now, Let's just accept that, that that is the case. And then let's say, well, what, what other tools might evolution have given us to, uh, to transcend this tribalism? So imagine in your mind's eye a kind of large population of people. Let's, for example, say it's a nation. And below that, imagine uh, at the second level, groups. And these groups could be defined by, by language or religion or ethnicity or occupation or any kind of trait, you know, these are the groups, these are, these are sports fans of one team versus another team, and there's these groups there. And then below that, we have the constituent individuals. So the problem we have is like, how are we gonna reduce the kind of groupiness and the intergroup animosity at the middle level? Well, one solution, as you've already alluded to, is to go up a level to the level of the whole group, because evolution, these, these distinctions are arbitrary, and our evolved psychology has equipped us with a capacity to make these distinctions. For example, in the book, I talk about some famous experiments done by others with using the so-called minimal group paradigm, 
where you can get little babies to hate each other just by randomly assigning them T-shirts of different colors. <laughs> so, so you know, you 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 know, you give a little group of toddlers, you know, green T-shirts, and another group randomly blue T-shirts, and all of a sudden the blue T-shirt toddlers think that those green T-shirt toddlers are awful children and you know, should be punished and you know shouldn't get any toys or something. I'm <laughs> I'm wearing I'm wearing a blue T-shirt and I agree with them. The green yes, exactly. The green T-shirt people are the problem. Are the problem. It, yeah. It's pathetic. I mean, it's pathetic that we are this way, but we are this way. Okay. So, so how do we solve it? Well, the capacity to draw distinctions between us and them is also part of our nature. Where we draw the boundaries is arbitrary. And so you could go up a level to the level of the nation, as you alluded to, and we could say, we are all Americans, for example. So these boundaries at the group level aren't relevant because those are arbitrary and we'll just redraw the boundary and redefine it up. And this has been a part of our history for several hundred years. You know, Alex, this, Alexis de Tocqueville writes about this sense that this new country of immigrants had in, in their Americanness, no matter where they came from. But that's not the only solution. There's another solution that evolution has equipped us with, and that's to go down a level. We can, we can efface the, 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 the salience of tribalism or of groups by moving down and starting to see each other as individuals because we have, in fact, been endowed with this capacity. We don't, we don't have to, I don't have to see you as, uh, as a simply an illustrative member of some other group, you know, journalists, and treat you like, let's say, I'm supposed to treat journalists. No, I can just see you as Jesse. And, and I've gotten to know you and you're a person with your own interests and abilities and history and so forth. And as I said, when I was talking about our faces, we've been equipped with this capacity. And this actually lie, is also part of our tradition in our country, our historical and our political tradition, because this is the essence of Martin Luther King's argument that he looked forward to a time when his children would be judged by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. It's a plea for recognizing people as individuals. So, so there are two, at least two ways that you can uh, address tribalism using other tools that evolution has endowed us with. One is to exploit the very capacity to make arbitrary distinctions. And the other is to exploit the ability to see people as individuals. I'm really interested in the question of, of national differences on this. And this is going a little bit beyond the scope of the book, but obviously um, they're connected. But it seems like part of what's going on in, in Europe is like there are countries where, not to overgeneralize, but I think Germany and France and to a certain extent the UK, they have a little bit more trouble accepting the idea of like a darker skinned non-Christian person is just as German or, or British or French as, as the rest of us. Whereas, as you sort of alluded to with the Tocqueville reference, like that is sort of baked into our national DNA. It's not, I'm not yeah, saying but we don't a, practice it perfectly. Well, there's a wrinkle though, right? I mean, not, we have a longer tradition of being tolerant of immigrants and so forth, but there's also this issue of assimilation. So the quid pro quo is you become American. So you, you know, if, if the argument would be that part of the problem, I think in some of these European countries is they don't necessarily have the same melting pot uh, uh, sort of philosophy, this sort of notion of assimilation. So, you know, I think, I think that the people who immigrate to the country, I think there's some expectation that you will, you, you're not just, you don't just become German by virtue of the fact that you are now residing in Germany. You have to become German by buying into all the things that Germans do, like obsessively, you know, uh, sort their recycling by the color of the glass. <laughs> uh, 
you know, you can't just, there's not just glass recycling in Germany. There's like blue glass and green glass and brown glass. Literally, they're like lined up on the streets. Right. So, you know, you can't just say, well, in my country, we don't sort, you know, we just, you know, if you're, I'm an American and we don't sort glass by color. No, you're in Germany now. So you've got to do that if you want to be German. Right. And I, but I think like I, I push back against that slightly because my, the example I'm most familiar with is um, Germany brought in these guest Turkish workers in the 50s because they had, for obvious reasons, not enough men to do certain jobs left. And the assumption was always they would go back to Turkey, that they would never be fully assimilated or integrated. And, you yes, know, the, host, the Germans may not have had the same tradition we did of welcoming immigrants. Correct. Right. But all I'm saying is it goes both. That, yes, they did. They lack this notion of assimilation and becoming German. You know, you can't become Japanese or Swiss, for instance, right? right. I mean, in many countries, we are. You're right. We are unusual in this regard. So, do you think uh, there's like the the big debate right now in lefty progressive circles over diversity and inclusion is is colorblindness? Like, people are pushing back against the Martin Luther King idea. They're saying that that's just it's in a sense a cover for more racism to pretend we can ignore. These racial differences, um, you know, I think Michelle Alexander made that point most famously, or a version of it. I, I guess I'm I'm torn because I understand that I understand that like uh, an African American person will likely have very different experiences from mine and been susceptible to certain forms of oppression. I've avoided. I'm also so you can't ignore that. I'm also skeptical of the idea that in a group interaction we should make race more salient. Um, as a general rule, where do you? That's a very broad question, but where do you? I'm going to I'm going to side with MLK on this. <laughs> yeah. So you just think that it's it's harmful to focus on on race, even if there's there's reasonable reasons to sometimes do so. Well, I mean, for example, in my classes, I teach about the role of racial inequalities in uh, in on health. Uh, you know, as public health, uh, you know, the ways in which. Uh, our society is, you know, the, 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 the role of race, for example, in contributing to different sorts of inequality when it comes to longevity and uh, healthcare delivery and so forth. Uh, this is a difficult topic because on the one hand, race should not matter. Uh, and uh, we should be able to, you know, go about our political and uh, health and medical care lives without reference to it. On the other hand, to ignore it is also to maybe contribute to the problems. So the, the problem is, in some ways, the far left and the far right get, get united here. I mean, they're both very race essentialist. They're, the far left is obsessed with race and the far right is obsessed with race. And, you know, I, I don't see that as I see that as, as kind of depressing. I mean, the, the thing I'm interested in is what I call our common humanity. I'm interested in the ways in which all human beings are soft on the outside, prone to these fundamental and wonderful qualities like love and friendship and cooperation and teaching and that we've been talking about. And, you know, I think I think it's uh, that's the part of our humanity that I'd like to emphasize. And I'll just reiterate that I, you know, I'm going to I'm going to affiliate myself with the beliefs of uh, on this regard, uh, on the hopes and aspirations of, of, of Martin Luther King. Now, King was also extremely practical and a tactician. Uh, you know, he was deeply aware of the horrible uh, racial injustices in our society and and fought against them not only morally and philosophically, but practically organizing boycotts, uh, arguing very explicitly. In his mountaintop speech the night before he dies, King talks about how the spending power of African-Americans at that time in the United States, if they had been a nation, they would have been the seventh or eighth biggest nation in the world. That is to say, quote, the African-American African economy in the United States had enormous economic power. And King was well aware of this, well aware of 
you know, he talks on his, on the mountaintop speech. He talks about Bull Connor, and he and he actually he defends free speech. Uh, King does in this thing. He says, you know, if we're not afraid of of Bull Connor's dogs and we're not afraid of his hoses, we're not going to be afraid of this silly injunction that is attempting to stop us from marching in violation of the Constitution and the protections the Constitution gives us of free expression and assembly. So, which are again fundamental human values. So, you know, I think there's a, obviously a lot going on in the topic we're discussing, but I am going to remain committed to the belief that there's more that unites us than divides us, and that human beings everywhere have a kind of a, a set of fundamental qualities that are good, and those are the parts that I'm going to focus on. Do you think, I mean, one, one potentially easy explanation for why racist sexualism pops up on the left and right is that that's a, a downside of our blueprint is we're very groupy and sometimes we conceive of groups in sort of oversimplified or ways, right? Yes, I think that's right. But I mean, I think, yes, that's correct. But the idea, your, your claim, your optimistic claim is we have, we have some power over this. We're not, we're not slaves to sort of... No, we have, we have other tools at our disposal to, uh, to unite as a community. So tribalism is only one of the tools with which we've been equipped. For example, another tool we've been equipped is, is the capacity for friendship. You know, you are able to make friends with any human being that you wish to make friends with. You, you don't pick your friends based on their religion, for example. You can pick your friends based on whatever you want. And each of us making these choices can give rise to a society that's knit together in a, in a kind of productive and, and uh, felicitous way. So, so you know, I, 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 I recognize the, the innate pull. I mean, th this thing is, uh, you know, as, as, as Tom Schelling showed years ago famously, even tiny preferences that each individual might have, whether black or white, let's say, to reside next to individuals that are of the same race, even tiny such preferences very rapidly lead to residential segregation and isolation of groups. And it doesn't take any kind of affirmative hatred even to give rise to, to this type of uh, you know, group segregation in our society. So, so these, these, these qualities that we have you know, can lead us astray, but there are other qualities we equally have that we can deploy. And I suppose that would be, that is in fact my argument. Yeah, it, it, it is like a fundamentally optimistic book, which I appreciate it. And, and I have to ask, I mean, it seems like you've more or less made a, I think the, the average American who's unfamiliar with your academic work is familiar with you from the whole, the Yale, uh, whatever you want to call it, brouhaha. And it seems like you made a conscious decision not to settle scores or to really go into that. I, is that accurate? That's correct. I'm not going to be defined. That was, you know, as I told, you know, Frank Bruni, that was one of the top 10 worst part experience I've had in my life. But there are many other challenges that I have faced in my life. And I'm not going to be defined uh, by that. And uh, nor am I going to let others define the kind of man that I am. So, you know, I'm not, um, you know, I, I have other things to say and do in the world than to talk about, you know, some students who lost their cool and acted th thoughtlessly and illiberally, you know, in 2015. I've talked about this with other people who have gotten sucked into culture war stuff. I, I've, um, in some quarters, I'm controversial, like because of some of my writing on gender dysphoria. And I found there's this thing where people with very different politics from my own will sort of try to 
co-opt me or what happened to me and try to sort of pull me in their direction. Has that happened to you or have you been shielded from that? I haven't paid much attention to those things. You know, I have I have a wonderful, magnificent group of people that work for me in my laboratory at Yale and the young scientists that are doing fantastic work. And we work all over the world. We're trying to improve public health in, in Honduras and in India. We, we are trying to improve cooperation uh, online and make people interact better online. We're, we're trying to find solutions to the problem of fake news. We are investigating the genetics and evolutionary biology of friendship and love uh, in, in our species and other species. We are, we're looking at economic uh, stability in, in poor communities. We, we look at the, the, the determinants of public health at a collective level. We, I have got important work I want to do with my life and, uh, and exciting work. And so that's what I focus on. I think what you should be focusing on is why people with red t-shirts are so damn evil. <laughs> There's a cartoon you might be able to find it. There's a funny cartoon. I don't know if I can do it justice where there's a guy walking down. There are two guys walking down a sidewalk approaching each other. One is wearing a blue T-shirt, a blue hat, and one finds a red hat on the street and bends over and picks it up and puts it on his head and then immediately glowers at the guy with the blue hat. You know, that that, you know, that guy suddenly is an awful guy because he has a, moments earlier he had no hat and didn't right. care. Now he has a red hat, so all of a sudden the blue-hatted guys are bad guys. There, I'll send you it. Uh, I'm not going to do this justice either, and I'll send it to you when we when we log off. There's a similar version of that where one guy's wearing a hat that says scub, which scub is a meaningless word. Uh-huh. He comes across a guy wearing anti-scub, and they just immediately start fighting. <laughs> I'll let you go in a sec. I just, you mentioned fake news. I, I'm fascinated by, I'm sure this is like work in progress, but but it's such a, a scourge. What are What are you guys looking into as ways to fight it? Uh, yeah, you're right. I, I don't want to go into it in detail right now. It's unpublished work, but we have uh, we have a variety of ideas about ways about why uh, how false information arises in social systems, how and why it spreads within social systems, and some ideas about how to stop it. Oh, that that sounds fascinating. I love, I, uh, yeah, I look forward to reading that when that's available. Well, I can come back on your podcast maybe in a couple of years, and we can have a whole conversation about that. As long as you're wearing the right color T-shirt, that's how. <laughs> anything before we uh, say goodbye? Anything else you want people to know about the book, or anything else I should have asked you? No, I guess I guess if I if I could if I could sum up, uh, you know, and if I, if you could indulge me, I, I would like to just read the last few sentences of the book. Let me just find a copy. One second. Sure. So I guess you know I, I I you know when I when I try to think about how I could summarize the book, I can't do better than than actually what I wrote at the end of the book, which is, in my view, we should be humble in the face of temptations to engineer society in opposition to our instincts. But actually, fortunately, we do not need to exercise any such authority in order to have a good life. Because as I argue, the arc of our evolutionary history is long, but it bends towards goodness. That seems like a very appropriate note to end on. Thank you. Thank you very much for this conversation. Thank you, Jesse. Let me know when you when you publish it, and I will also... Um, t- you know, tweet it and promote it and stuff. Thank you so much. We'll uh, we'll talk more soon. Okay, man. Bye-bye. Bye bye.